0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. This is a topic that I have been thinking about for some time, as you can gauge by the difference in hair color in that picture and and now. But um, what I want to do today is to try and use the experience of those years to see whether it's taught me anything and also to use some, uh, some data from uh, some young people and I'm very grateful to Eve Boyle and to Andrew Dew and to David Patterson who are all graduate students in the HOMPAL, in the HOMPAL um, program at uh, the university where I come from and I'm mentioning Mark Collard here because he and I worked on this um, now, a little time ago, and I'm going to say some things that he might or might not agree with, and I'm just giving him a warning. <laughs> so what? What are we looking for? Homo is a genus. And when Mark and I started to think about this, we, we could not find a, a definition of a genus that was universally supported. So we put together... For, for our own purposes, a working definition of a genus. And we suggested that it was a species or a monophyletic group whose members occupy a single adaptive zone. Now, let me try and unpack some of that. Uh, For a species to be included in a genus, it should belong to the same monophyletic group as the type species of that genus. Now, the type species of the genus Homo is Homo sapiens. So, what we argued was that the, um, that if a species deserved to belong to Homo, then it should be in the same monophyletic group. Now, a slightly shorter term for, mono, uh, for monophyletic group is the word clade. And how do you define a clade? The definition that, uh, that we used was all of the taxa, no more and no less, that are, that are descended from a recent common ancestor. Now, I like metaphors from the, uh, the car industry, and so as not to let my colleagues down, I've got some new ones here. Um, <laughs> the, the common ancestor of all Toyotas <laughs> is a Toyota, is a model of, which was developed in 1935 by a company. The, uh, the company originally made machinery to make um, textiles. So it was not, it did not start as a car company, but they decided that they wanted to make cars and uh, they went to America to learn how to make cars and they went back to uh, Japan and they made a car and it was the A1. So that's the the common ancestor of all the models of Toyota that are and um, have ever been. So that's what we're looking for. The the notion of the, uh, the second criterion was that, that for a species to be included in Homo, its adaptive strategy should be closer to the one of the type species, i.e. modern humans, than uh, to the type species of any other genus. So the candidate species that we are thinking about, including in the genus Homo, that and the type species should be part of the same grade. So what is a grade? It's just a series of questions that I keep. Okay. So a grade is a group of taxa that shares a suite of, of what we call adaptive features. So we would suggest that if you do share those features, you are in the same adaptive zone. So back to the cars. So the, uh, the Toyota Motor Company decided that it should make a Jeep. It, it saw the success of the Willis Jeep. It was a four-wheel drive car. So it, so it decided to, uh, to make its own four-wheel drive car. My suggestion is that as soon as you make a four-wheel drive car, you are in a new adaptive zone. You are, you are in a different adaptive zone. And this is the one that they made. And so my contention is that in the Toyota clade, the BJ, which is what this is, marked the beginning of a new adaptive zone of four-wheel drive vehicles. Now, you could argue that hybrid cars might be a new adaptive zone as well. You could argue that the, the design of a minivan, which was introduced by the Toyota Motor Company, and it was called, very imaginatively, the first one, it was called a van. Okay. And then the next model was called the Previa, and the model that succeeded that was the one that you see now called the Sienna. My contention and my suggestion is that the notion of a minivan is a new adaptive zone. Um, There are levels of sophistication. Now the doors open electronically and you can argue that, you know, does the addition of electric opening doors make it a new adaptive zone? That's up to you. My sense is that it's not much different as to whether you you open the door yourself, or whether they open electrically. And so I wouldn't call that a different adaptive zone. So here, there are people who are interested in the evolution of the four-wheel drive vehicles made by Toyota. And um, um, here is an image that was, very kindly, that was very kindly found for me by another graduate student called, um, who is called Alexander Pruker, and you can see that there are people who are interested in the evolutionary history of the Land Cruiser. And so they are interested in what we are interested in. But the problem is, but if all the evidence you had for the evolutionary history of the Toyota was a few fragments, maybe part of the windshield, a little bit of the wheel, something from the grill, a little bit of the fender or something from the hood, and the problem is you didn't even have the same parts for the different models that you're trying to link. That gives you a sense of what, you, of what we are trying to do. We do not have the equivalent of the luxury of all this information about the, the models and the developments within the evolutionary history of the Toyota Land Cruiser. So the second question, what about the who? The, the genus Homo was was established by Linnaeus in 17, way back in the 18th century. And, and as the years have gone by, the um, more and more taxa have been added, and they have been included in the genus. So initially, the Neanderthals were included, and then a taxon called Homo heidelbergensis, and then a taxon called Homo Rhodesiensis, and then a taxon called Homo soloensis. And maybe the biggest addition was made by Ernst Meyer during the Second World War, when he suggested that the taxa that had been in the genus, or the genera Sinanthropus and the, the genus Pythicanthropus, should be included in Homo. So as the years went by, the genus Homo became more and more inclusive. The criteria for admission were relaxed. Um, the initial criterion was you had to have a brain as large as ours. And so admitting Homo neanderthalensis that wasn't a big, that wasn't a huge deal because they had large brains too. But by the time you get to, to including Homo erectus in Homo, you are admitting that this is a genus that can have individuals that can have brains Half the size of the average modern human. Then, in 1964, Lewis Leakey and the person that the Leakeys had recruited to help them interpret the anatomy of their fossils, um, Philip Tobias and John Napier, they published a paper in Nature suggesting that some fossils that have been found at Olduvai should be should be included in a new species, and that species' name was Habilis. But maybe. More controversially, they suggested that that species should be included in Homo. Now, that meant relaxing the criteria even more. And the question is, was that process of relaxation, that last process of relaxation, to what extent did that stay within the definition of a genus that Mark and I suggested? In other words, is Homo habilis part of the same clade? And is Homo habilis part of the same grade? What we argued in a paper in Science way back was that we didn't think the evidence was all that strong. But let's get back to that. So how has this process of progressive inclusivity affected the grade um, definition of Homo? This is an extremely specious interpretation of the hominin fossil record. Modern humans are in the top left. What I call a grade... Uh, which I call pre-modern Homo, which includes Neanderthals and Heidelbergensis and uh, um, Homo erectus is in the blue. And then the hominins that, uh, that Bill Kimball is going to be talking about, the, the mustard-colored ones are down in the bottom right. And then there are some rather brownish ones, which, have, which are rather like the mustard-colored ones, except they have extremely large molars and premolars. These are animals with very large mandibles and very large post-canine teeth. So the... The inclusion of Homo habilis in Homo meant that the genus Homo would include what I've called pre-modern Homo, plus the, the taxa that I have called um, transitional hominins on the, the basis of the findings that, uh, that Mark and I published way back in 1999. Now, I think that paper was superbly well-argued and was extremely clearly written but it made hardly any impression on my colleagues. (laughs) And it's fair to say that apart from a few discerning and discriminating scientists, most people still include the Taxa Homo habilis and Homo rudolfensis within the genus Homo. So that's one way of interpreting the genus Homo. So the origin of the genus Homo would be, how do you explain the appearance of Homo habilis? That's another way of asking the same question. In which case, you would include Homo habilis and Homo rudolphensis, which is, some people think might be distinct from Homo habilis, but is a similar sort of organism, you would include them in the dark blue category, in the dark blue grade. If Mark and I are correct, then you wouldn't extend the genus Homo down that far. You would stop at the beginning of Homo erectus, in which case you would regard, you would regard Homo habilis and Homo rudolphensis as not the same species as the other Australopiths, but nonetheless within the same adaptive zone as the other Australopiths. So what has happened since the publication of the paper in science that nobody took any notice of in 1999? <laughs> more fossil evidence has been found, and not only is more fossil evidence, more fossils been found, but the existing fossils have been reanalyzed and reconstructed and so on. So that's one development. The other development is that we have new data and there are people who are reassessing the existing data which relate to what I've called the functional capacities of these animals. What to eat, what can we infer about how dexterous they were? What can we infer about how smart they were? What can we infer about what they were eating? These are just a few of the uh, the publications that are relevant to this but I want to talk about the categories of of the data that to the that speak to cognition and some new data that speak to diet. Now in relation to cognition, these are not new data. The, the, most of the data that were analyzed were the, uh, the specimens which were used by Leslie Iolo, who's in the audience, and, will, and she will be speaking later. And this was a plot which was published in a paper, and this was a paper which, which, which looked at the relationship between brain size and other evolutionary trends. And it was this plot which gave rise to this notion that there was a burst, there was a, there was a period of relatively sudden increase in brain size at the origin of the genus Homo, and then there was another burst of increase in brain size at the origin of the, uh, the, uh, the species Homo sapiens. But these data, the, uh, the plot looks, looks as if it is consistent with that interpretation, but the plot represents each value as one point. And the problem with the plot is that and the, the data are subject to error. In other words, there is error in the estimation of the endocranial volume, and there is error in the estimation of the age. So what a bunch of graduate students did, led by Andrew, do was to look at these data again. And so these are the, the data, and it's the other way around. In other words, the, uh, the older data are to the left and the younger data are to the right. So those are also point data. But then if you add the error the error of the age and the error of the estimation of the endocranial volume, you see that the data look rather different. Then when you do some very fancy statistics, which I was very tempted to pretend that I knew what they were, but I decided that I wasn't going to pretend that I knew what they were. And then they tested the, the data against various modes of change, random walk or gradualism or stasis or punctuated equilibrium, which was the hypothesis of the, of the relatively sudden increase in brain size, and so on and so forth, they found that the, the, uh, the mode which had much the greatest amount of support was gradualism. So in other words, the, the data, if you account for the error of the age and the estimate of the endocranial volume, there is, no evidence, there is no evidence of a punctuated event. So how about diet? Well, this is work of David Patterson. And you can see here that there are... Th- there are three color bands, the Australopiths that, that Bill's going to be talking about. So you can see they are in the light green band. And then the first of the red columns represents the early evidence for Homo in the Chicana Basin, which is, which is either Homo habilis or it's Homo rudolfensis. And then the second of the red columns is the evidence for Homo in the Chicana Basin, which is Homo erectus or Homo ergaster. So if the major grade shift was between the Australopiths and the first red column you wouldn't expect the first red column to be where it is because these are carbon isotope values so there is a shift between the first red column in other words homo habilis and the second red column which is homo erectus so here is david and and um, he's the one who's collected these data so if you look at this plot you can see the the blue squares are paranthropus boisei who are living in exactly the same lake basin as what is alleged to be Homo habilis and, and widely accepted to be Homo erectus. And there is no change in isotopic signal for, for the Paranthropus boisei individuals, but there is a change in isotopic signal for Homo. So there is, there is a more C3 signal for Homo habilis, and then there is a significantly different more C4 signal for Homo erectus. You might say, oh, well, that's just because the environment was changing and everything was changing and Peranthropus boisei was the only large mammal that wasn't changing. Well, that's not true. If you look at all the other large mammals, they don't change and Peranthropus boisei doesn't change. It's just Homo that does. So there is a dietary shift from Homo habilis to Homo rectus. And the, the isotopic signal for the diet of Homo habilis is no different from the isotopic signals of the creatures that, uh, that um, uh, preceded it, and we call Australopith. So my suggestion is that we just should not assume that the interesting things were happening, at, uh, were happening around the appearance of Homo habilis. My suggestion is, no different than, from the suggestion we made in the paper in 1999, that most of the action is around the appearance of Homo erectus, And it's not around the appearance of Homo habilis. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.